Well, welcome to another episode of Conversations and Connections. Of course, this is the official podcast of the Family Crisis Center of East Texas. I'm Stuart Burson, the Prevention Coordinator for the agency. And today we're doing something a little different. We're having someone from an outside agency come and and talk to us. So on the podcast, we do want to highlight uh, some of the some of the agencies that the Family Crisis Center works with and kind of find out what they do and how we all kind of work together uh, to the same or, or for, for the same objective. So today from Harold's House, we have Ashley Cook, the Community Education Director for them. Ashley, thank you. Thank for you. for coming by. I appreciate it. Thank you for your welcome and thank you for having me. We are a sister agency and we just love working with y'all. Yeah, we do a lot of things together, I know. Um, well, first of all, to kind of set the stage, if you, if you don't mind, because I'm sure there's a lot of people that may have heard of Harold's House but may not know exactly uh, what you guys do. So if you don't mind, just tell us a little bit about Harold's House and the services you provide. Sure. We are a nonprofit agency. We're what's called a Children's Advocacy Center or a CAC, or sometimes you hear us call a CAC. So any of those things fit us. But very, very attractive sounding <laughs> acronyms, right? That's right. <laughs> um, so whatever works for you, we just love people working with us. <laughs> but a Children's Advocacy Center, there are about um, 70 across the state of Texas. We cover three counties. We cover Angelina, Nacogdoches, and Sabine counties. Okay. And um, do you want me to talk a little bit about what we do? Sure. Please. Um, we, um, before centers like Harold's House came along, whenever a child would make an outcry, whenever they would talk about something happening to them, and maybe some sexual abuse or physical abuse, maybe they'd been through something or they'd witnessed a major crime, they would go to a lot of places to talk about that. Once the system came into play, they'd go to the police department. They might go to the courthouse and talk to attorneys. They might have to go to the hospital and get interviewed and examined there. It was really traumatic going to all yeah. these places, really that weren't designed with children children in mind. If you think about like a hospital ER, wonderful place where we have just amazing professionals. Um, my husband had a had an appendix go uh, two years ago, and so we went through the ER here, and I just loved them. They took such wonderful care of him. Um, but it's really not a place that's designed for children. It's big and scary things are happening well, there. Any anyone who experiences this sort of thing, it's traumatic, and so I'm sure it's probably tenfold for a child. Right. And to actually talk about it, if you think about, you know, think about your your closest, most intimate sexual experience, for example, and having to talk to somebody else that's not your partner about sure. that, you know, and especially if you're a child, you know, something that's not supposed to be occurring to you, um, to, to actually begin to talk about that, to make that outcry, how much courage that takes. And so now that centers like Harold's House come along, when that child makes that outcry, let's say they're at school and they say something to a teacher, and we call that an outcry when a child actually talks about it and the teacher makes that report. Now children are able to come to Harold's house and the, through the police or through CPS, the Child Protective Services, um, they bring the child with a non-offending caregiver a family member who isn't the person who's accused of possibly doing something to them, they come to the center and they're able to get all their services under one roof. Mm -hmm. And so they're not jumping and hopping from place to place, from agency to agency. And we're also right. designed to be child-centered. So when you walk in our building, it doesn't look like an institution. 
It's friendly. We've got a big fish tank. The kids run to that. Yeah. They love it. We've got friendly paintings on the wall and nice welcoming colors. It looks like somebody's house. Uh-huh. Uh, and, and the playroom looks like someone's living room. So children are able to come there and they get what's called a forensic interview which is a non-leading interview by someone who's dressed in just regular street clothes that just helps facilitate them telling their story. Sure. And this sure. story is recorded, audio, um, audio and visual recorded. And in the next room, professionals are sitting and listening to that interview. Police officers, CPS, maybe someone from the district attorney's office. And they're listening and watching that. And so they can watch that interview once it's recorded multiple times. And the child doesn't have to tell their story over and over and over. So it cuts down. Um, on the chances yeah. of the child being re-traumatized. Right, right. And while that's happening, we help the families understand what the process is and what they're going through. And one of the best things that I love to say about Harold's House is that no one ever has to pay a dime when they come through for services. You don't have to worry about what your insurance is. Yeah. You don't have to worry about what you have in your pocket. You just come in and receive the services thanks to the wonderful support of our community and our giving um, organizations. Awesome. Great. Uh, one thing I want to touch on is the name of the agency, Harold's House. Yes. Who, uh, <laughs> tell us about um, your, your namesake and, and, and where, where that name came from. Harold um, was a police officer with Lufkin Police Department. He was a lieutenant, Lieutenant Harold Cottle. And his daughter is actually the head of this organization that I'm sitting in right now. <laughs> right. <laughs> so we're just related in all kinds of wonderful yeah. ways. And Harold had a real passion for children in need, children who'd been abused and needed support um, through his calling in law enforcement and what he encountered. And so he was one of the people who were the founding fathers and mothers, as we might say, of our organization. Um, been around 13 years now since we've been around, and it started Originally, it had an office near downtown, right across mm -hmm. from the police department. Okay. Um, and when it grew and expanded, it started out being called the Angelina Alliance for Children. And once our services moved beyond the borders of Angelina County into our two other, we changed sure. it and named it after Harold because of his wonderful That's founding awesome. work. So we have a photo of him up in our right. organization. Well, in fact, in the room that we're recording this in right now here at the Family Crisis Center, we have a... We have a picture of him on the wall. Wonderful. So, yeah. He yeah. had a huge impact on this community. <laughs> sure. His whole family has had a huge impact right. on this community. Um, I want to move on to talk a little bit about things that y'all may have seen in regards to the effect of sexual assaults on children. Is there, what kind of a difference is there between, I guess, an adult's reaction and the way they handle something like that and the way a child handles that. Well, you know, it, it can depend. And a lot of times a child doesn't know something is wrong. They may, it may feel um, wrong to them. They may sense that it's not okay if an adult's acting suspicious or they're trying to hide something. Um, but a child, depending on what age they are and what they've been taught, may not even understand that it's something wrong. And this is what crosses the boundaries of what love and affection are and what relationships are with caregivers. Um, and it may affect their bodies, too. We have, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that we had a sexual assault nurse examiner who does examination, physical examinations of children and our, our advocates also who work with the families there. 
And um, a lot of times our nurse is able to have those conversations with children to tell them that their body's okay. Yeah. You know, um, even if they have a wound or an injury that will heal and it doesn't mean that they've been permanently damaged as a person. A lot of times the children are afraid this has changed me in some way um, that is substantial right. and lifelong. Um, but a lot of times they're able to get reassurance from our staff members. No, this is something that happened to you and you can overcome this and heal. Yeah. And that's probably, and I would just guess that that might be something even a perpetrator takes advantage of is the fact that a child may not know at an early age, that something that has happened to them like that may be wrong. Right. We have something that's called grooming, which is where a perpetrator begins to break down the boundaries slowly over time with touches or maybe showing a child dirty pictures or telling them a dirty joke or um, just trying to get them into situations where they may not you know, be very comfortable and they try a little more and they try a right. little more. Rarely does an abuser just suddenly attack a child. That, that can happen. But most of the time they're breaking down those boundaries of trust. And that's another thing that is insidious about child sexual abuse is that so many of their emotional boundaries have been broken down. Yeah. And sometimes, to be honest, you know, Depending on what age the child is, it can even feel good to their body, you know, especially if they're in puberty. Mm -hmm. And they, that physical response that they have is confusing because they know they're not supposed to be having that response right. with that person. And so that can also really hurt and damage, you know, their sexual relationships, their whole sure. lives. Right. Um, do you see, I guess, in, in, in the area that you serve, do you see a lot of instances regarding... Uh, Sexual assault of children. I guess how pro, how um, how common is it here in rural East Texas? Well, unfortunately, we do see a lot of it. I wish I could say that we don't, but we do, and we are frequently working with children. The national statistic is one in ten children. This happens to one in ten children, and it's estimated that only about one out of ten of those ever talk about it. Well, that was going to be my next question. You know, it's probably a lot of it depends on if a child comes forward or not. Right. I can tell you that um, our the latest data we have in 2019, we're still finishing up our 2020 data, mm -hmm. but from 2019, our primary victims, um, the children that things happened directly to, that we interviewed, 520 children. And there were 922 secondary victims or family members. Out of those 520, uh, more than 70% is child sexual abuse. So the, the majority of what we see is unfortunately yeah. child sexual yeah. abuse. Do you see a lot of um, parents or relatives not being able to accept that this may have happened to their child or being in denial that, this has happened, like this can't happen to my child. We do see that thing. sometimes. Of course, nobody wants to think yeah. that this may have happened to their children. So, you know, it's sometimes it's shock. Um, it may be fear of the family finding out or what will the community think. Um, and then we do have, unfortunately, those non-supportive uh, family members who just don't want to believe right. that something's happened or maybe they'll choose um, a boyfriend over their child. Um, yeah. Those are very unfortunate occasions right. because the child's not getting the loving support that they sure. need for healing. And I would think you probably see the same thing that we see at the Family Crisis Center is just in the community in general. All oh, this doesn't happen here in our backyard or this doesn't happen at our school or at our church or in our family. Not us, you know, right. not East. That, you know, that's 
the big cities or the the dangerous parts, you know, of communities. That's where that happens, not here. Right. People think that it only happens somewhere else. Right. But it happens here. Um, you know, the the common statistic among um, these child victims is, is that 90% of the time it's somebody they know. And so we know the vast majority of child sexual abuse is done by our family members, our friends, our neighbors. Right. Um, someone we know and trust in very often those circumstances. And so there's betrayal that happens in the family. Um, I remember years ago I was training a group of teachers, and a teacher said, but when we make a report, we destroy families, she said. And I was, that was difficult to hear, but I was really glad that she said it because we were able to talk about it. And I said, you know, the destruction is already going on. It's just happening within the confines of the child's body, mind, and spirit. And so we need to hold on while the boat rocks, yeah. while the adults around that child can circle the wagons and protect that child and get them the support that they need. Sure. Sure. How do you even begin? You have a child that's been a survivor of a sexual assault. How do you even begin to heal the trauma that 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 a, a child receives, and that? And I'm not not I'm not really obviously talking about the physical trauma, but just even the mental toll on a child. How? How do you even begin to, to start the healing process? Well, I would say, you know, at the beginning, healing is a very individual process. So we can't mm -hmm. necessarily put a map on it that's the same for everybody. So I want to be careful to say that because every victim deserves to have the process that they want and that they need. But the very first thing is that the abuse has to stop. You can't begin your healing uh, from your trauma unless the abuse has stopped. A lot of people you know, may not think about that, but we have to interrupt the process. Yeah. So that's the first thing. That has to completely stop. And then talking about it, being able to open up in a safe space to a counselor, um, to somebody who's had experience working with children who've been in trauma, especially sexual trauma, uh, trauma-focused counselor, we call them, and to be believed to have someone who hears your story and believes you. Exactly. If a child is not going to be believed, chances are they're going to shut down and they're not going to talk about it. And see, it. and that pains me because I've heard of instances where a child may make a, an outcry and an adult may not believe them. Yes. And outcries are rare. They, they happen, but more, you know, more often it's seeing some behavior changes in a child. Mm -hmm. It's seeing some things that they say that tip us off. So well, and let's let's go ahead and let's go ahead and, and talk about that. You brought up a good a good point. Uh, as for parents, family members, friends of families, teachers, whoever is in contact with with children, what are some of the signs that someone needs to look for in a child who may be experiencing sexual abuse or sexual assault? One of the first things are the physical injuries. Those are less often. Those happen less often. It's usually more often behavioral changes. But when we do have physical injuries, we want to pay attention to those. Any kind of damage in a private area to a child, um, to their genital areas, um, to their bottom, to their mouths, um, any kind of unusual rash, 
um, in very small children, not just a diaper rash, but something that looks strange. Unfortunately, sometimes if an, an offender has a sexually transmitted disease, they can pass that along to a child. So a parent may see something that's very unusual that they're not sure what it is, or any kind of damage or injury would be an, an immediate response, of course, um, to take take them to the doctor. Right. Um, or uh, make a call to law enforcement. Changes in behavior, you know, abused children, they'll be scared or anxious. They might be depressed or withdrawn or more aggressive. Mm -hmm. Their grades might be dropping suddenly. Um, Sometimes, especially younger children who've been toilet trained can have differences in toileting. They can suddenly totally reverse their toileting. Okay. And, and suddenly be soiling themselves. Sometimes it's a physical issue if they're unable to control their bowel or bladder due to damage from, from abuse, which is a horrible thought, but unfortunately yeah. occurs. Um, but it can also be a psychological issue. Um, so th- we call that returning to earlier behaviors like sucking their thumb, bedwetting, some things that they you know hadn't been doing before, suddenly afraid of a person, a particular person or a particular place. You know, and it's really just red flags for paying attention as a parent or as a caregiver. You know, maybe there was just a big dog there last time they visited someone's house and they got scared, you know, something like that. But it's, you know, asking if they're okay. Is there anything you need to talk to me about? And we can get, you know, more into that if you want to in a minute. But changes in their eating and sleeping habits and school. Um, Some children do even change their hygiene. They'll stop taking care of their bodies because they're trying to discourage somebody from touching them. So that's something that we might not um, thinking about. Older children um, become risky, um, very sexual, drinking a lot, doing a lot of drugs, driving very fast. Those kind of risk-taking behaviors become very angry, run away, you know, lashing out. Um, so those yeah. are the kinds of things that we can see. Wow, Okay. Um, do you ever find a common thread amongst uh, child survivors? Is there, is there kind of something common that runs through that, that you see, or is there such a thing? I really think one of them is that, that really important, that 90% statistic, that more than 90% of the time, they know their abuser. And so it's a broken relationship in a terrible way, in a traumatic way. I would say in East Texas, it's much closer to 100% because that 90% is a national statistic. But here in East Texas, we have very, very few stranger assaults. Right. You know, it it is important to teach your children stranger danger, that rhyme that we use, stranger danger. Mm -hmm. Whenever I go into schools and talk to children, they all know that rhyme and they know what that means. Not as many are taught the safety rules of the people who are closest to them. And so one of the quickest ways to cut down on this kind of abuse is to eliminate uh, one-on-one situations in your child's life where there's one adult and one child alone together. If you don't need to have that situation in your child's life, eliminate it. For example, if you were going to drop your child off at someone's house for a music lesson, you wouldn't drop them off. You would stay there for the music lesson. Yeah. So it's just an example. Or you wouldn't leave them alone with a youth director or alone with a coach, something like that. You know, maybe you need to be the volunteer parent to be the assistant coach to yeah, make sure, sure there's two people, whatever it takes yeah. to cut down on those. Because the vast majority of child sexual abuse happens in those one-on-one situations where there's an opportunity. Not that our children can't ever be alone with grandpa or grandma or something like that, but to make sure that they know it can be interrupted at 
any time. Yep. And parents can have always have access to their children. And I think that's the biggest or one of the biggest myths, even for us at the Family Crisis Center, you know, dealing with um, sexual assaults is that I think a lot of people are under the assumption that most of them are going to be strangers, mm -hmm. uh, the perpetrator. And even with adults, the majority of perpetrators are family members. Yes. You know, I and, can think of the thousands of cases I've seen in the years I've worked at Harold's house that have come through. I can think of maybe two that were stranger yeah. assaults that stand out to me as stranger assaults. It's always somebody that the family knows. And so that tells me that's a scary thing. But I like yeah. to say, turn that into a tool in your toolbox as a parent, as a caregiver. Use that as um, some, some intel, some information you can know that that means the safety rules apply to everybody. Nobody is above the rules. Right. So everyone should respect a child's boundaries. And I wonder if this is difficult a difficult topic for some parents because of the fact that it is it is a difficult topic to talk about it is it is and, and i really encourage parents to start early you know they, there's a lot of stress and pressure about the sex talk you know to have kind of the safety talk in with mm -hmm. that but i like to say don't wait for one big huge really embarrassing difficult <laughs> way too late sex talk right. but but start early on with things like potty training where you enable a child to clean their own body as soon as possible and say, this is your private area. Mm -hmm. You clean that. You can do that. You're such a good boy, such a big boy, such a big girl. So proud of you. No one else should touch you there in a way that hurts you right. or scares you or makes you feel uncomfortable. That's what I tell children when I go into schools is no one should touch you in these private areas in a way that hurts you or scares you or makes you feel uncomfortable. And if that happens, talk to somebody. And I'm thinking, and I don't know, I may be completely wrong, it may almost be easier to talk about something like that with a very young child yes. before they get uh, yes. the knowledge that of, you know, your private parts are more than just potty parts. Right. Right. You know, and I think maybe when they're younger, it might be easier to talk to them about that yes. before <laughs> embarrassment Yes, sets in. before the hormones hit, <laughs> if you, know. you can possibly talk to them. And it becomes part of what I like to call a lifetime conversation about safety. It yeah. begins with potty training in the bathtub, you know, my mm -hmm. privacy when I'm getting dressed and I'm able to clothe myself. It just, that matures into things on the playground. And then that matures into the dating conversations. We've done that with, I have two children. We've had those conversations with my own children over the years because of what I do for a living. And they may have rolled their eyes <laughs> a couple of oh, times. I, you know? I, yeah, right. Oh, mom, I don't <sighs> want to talk about that again. We don't want to talk about it all the time because we don't want to freak kids out. Right. Let's just revisit it. I just want, hey, I just want to check in with you and make sure you yeah. know. Sure. You know, and, and the children knew that. They knew that safety rule where they were never supposed to be alone with somebody. And so um, we, we had kind of a, a words for that. And we'd get a, I'd get a phone call. Hey, Mom, um, turned out the other kids didn't show up. And so it's just me and the band director. I'm like, okay, cool. I'm on my way. I'll be right, right there. Yeah. You know, those kind of conversations where it just becomes part of They're not scared. It just becomes part of the normal operation of how we conduct the family and what our yeah. safety rules are. And that's such a good lead into dating safety. Right, right. All right. Um, before we move on, because uh, I do want to talk to you just a little bit about you. <laughs> uh, is, there any, is there anything else that you want to make sure um, our audience knows about? Is there something that we haven't touched on that you really want to make sure people 
well, know I about just, or it's something that we haven't addressed that I want to say that the people I work with at Harold's house are so wonderful. They're all, you know, none of us are in, you know this from your agency, none of us are in this because we're in it for the, the major accolades or for, sure. you know, the big wallet or anything like that. We love what we do. And I'm, I'm so thankful for the people I work with. I'm amazed at watching what they do every day, um, right. working with children in these heinous situations and the and our agency partners our law enforcement and our cps and our da's office and our counselors Mm -hmm. everyone comes together to do this work um, that changes the lives of children and it's it's an honor and a joy to be able to do it but i just want to say i'm grateful for the team because i can't say enough about how really good that they are awesome and i think we do have our both of our agencies i think have a very good relationship absolutely and uh i think you know we we help each other you know in this in in this cause actually i want to just ask you what made you decide to what is your background okay you know you you're the community education director yes uh what does that mean what what do you do as community education director what is your exact responsibilities well one of the primary things that i do is teach parenting classes to at-risk families people who usually people who are working with cps in the beginning of their cases about the first 40 days of a, of a case mm-hmm. for cps is working with a family in a difficult situation and the parents maybe just need to pick up some skills and so um, I do, I'm doing them by Zoom now because of COVID, yeah. uh, as we all are doing our, our jobs a little sure. differently these days, um, but teaching them some basic safety information just to get some information into their hands, healthy communication, healthy discipline, anger management. So that's a big part of what I do. Working in schools to teach body safety, I have a program called No Go Tell that work with children. Um, that is significantly changed due to COVID as we're not allowed to get in as much as we were, but I've done a lot by recording on Zoom. Yeah. Uh, and sending, I have been able to get in in person a little bit to some schools, so that's good. We've taught, also partnered with Family Crisis Center to teach middle school and high school children about dating safety, body safety. You know, you're never too old, really, for body safety when it comes to, you know, ages, you know, zero through mm-hmm. 18. So talking to teens who may have never heard anything at all about the rights they have to their own bodies. And then um, I go and talk to media. Uh, for instance, if there's a case that's happened, I, I don't talk about the case itself due to privacy reasons, but I can put out good information for parents uh, who may be seeing something and yeah. be frightened about how to handle situations like that with their own children. What made you decide to do this line of work? Young Ashley going to school, <laughs> uh, uh, what What's your education background like? Well, I'm a proud graduate of SFA, Axum Jacks. So um, graduated um, from there. I did an internship at our local newspaper, Lufkin Daily News. Oh, wow. So, okay. Um, an, an old a newspaper person and um, did that career for several years. Really? And uh, I guess I think I was seven years, I believe. I worked as a reporter and I was the city editor. See, I think I know your name more along for that. When did you start at Harold's House? When did you begin? Harold's House, I started in 2013. Okay, I think. And I had a little jog in between there. I was a hospice chaplain for three years in between those two jobs. And so I was actually working as a hospice chaplain when I got recruited to come to Harold's House and to build this new position. Laura Squires, um, who was then the director, 
came and asked me if I'd consider doing this position that was a new thing uh -huh. um, for Harold's House, and I was excited about it. I just love working in jobs where I connect with community and can help identify situations where people need support, and that's what I, I love doing that as a reporter. I love doing that in hospice, and I, I love doing it at Harold's House. Great. If someone needs to get a hold of Harold's House, are they normally referred to by law enforcement, or do they ever contact you directly? How does that work? Children arrive through working with either law enforcement or CPS. And so okay. a CPS worker or law enforcement will tell you that you have an appointment at Harold's house and where to go. Um, people are always welcome to call us if they have questions, you know, just in general. If you're worried about something that your child has said or done and you're just not sure what that means and could that be a red flag, they're always welcome to call us at 634-1999. Or they can email me, acook, at heraldshouse.org. Okay. Awesome. Ashley, I appreciate you. Thank, thank you so much for um, taking some time and, and coming by to talk about the, the great work that you guys do. And I, I appreciate you taking some time today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. All right. Well, uh, if you have any questions or comments uh, that you would like to uh, to make or, or share with us, we can do that. Uh, we do have our email address. That is conversationsandconnections at fccet.com. And also, if you feel like you need any of our services here at the Family Crisis Center, we do have a 24-hour day, seven-day-a-week hotline. That number is 1-800-828-7233. That's 1-800-828-7233. And as always, remember, be the voice, if not for you, for someone else.